Today, we look at the world in a way you rarely do, in extreme detail, on this episode of Behind the Shot. Hi, once again, welcome to Behind the Shot. I'm your host, Steve Brazel. This is the podcast where we try and get inside the mind of great photographers by taking a closer look behind one of their shots from conception to completion and all those little challenges and stories that happen in between. My guest today is a returning guest. I haven't had him on for about six months or so, but he's one of those photographers. You know what I mean? There's there's those photographers out in the world that when you see their work, you realize that you're doing everything in your life kind of wrong. <laughs> this is Don Komarechka. Don, how are you, my friend? I am great, Steve. Thank you so much for having me back on. Uh, now that we're into the warmer weather, the uh, the subject matter that I uh, that I call my own changes quite drastically from season to season. Yeah, and and this is a different season for you. Normally, you shoot very, very cold things. In fact, if they get warm, it kind of ruins the picture. And now you're more into the uh, the spring and summer season of what you shoot. So let's kind of tell people a little bit about you. First of all, you're a nature photographer. A macro photographer is mostly how I think of you, but also landscape and a bunch of other things, cityscapes, aurora. But here's some of the ones that really stick in my mind. Pollen, you shoot pollen, you shoot snowflakes, you shoot insects. Uh, you also have some really killer infrared stuff. Tell us, um, the, the people that don't know you, and I did have you on once before for a snowflake episode where we looked at one of your snowflake shots. And people, if you want to know what extreme macro photography is, go look up that episode. It'll be a link in the in the, uh, in the the blog post as well at behindtheshot.tv. So Don, tell us a little bit about what you consider the type of photography that you do. Call it the unseen world, Steve. Call it the, the world that you can't see with your own eyes, either because it's too small or that we're just incapable of seeing it in terms of infrared photography or ultraviolet. There's patterns in flowers that insects can see that we can't. You can uh, make pretty much anything fluoresce if you hit it with enough ultraviolet light and then visible light bounces back. You dive into a flower and you see you know, just a world of detail, the universe at our feet. Is, uh, is a wonderful thing to explore as a photographer, partly because you can take great images that way, but it has uh, a certain impact on you as a human being because a lot of these subjects, they're inconsequential to our survival in our daily lives, um, but there's an infinite beauty within them if you take the time to look for it. Yeah, and, and you mentioned a couple of things. One, we as larger humans, you know, don't think about these small worlds that don't have an effect on our lives, but in many ways, we have an extreme effect on theirs, and it's a beauty that you don't see daily. Yes, you look at a flower and you think flowers are beauty by, by design, but then when you really get in and you look at that flower or you look at the insect that's on that flower, you mentioned, I mentioned that you do infrared, but you mentioned UV light. You've got some really cool, we almost chose one for today, but we didn't, really cool uh, ultraviolet uh, light photos as well. But let's talk a little bit about your background. You do you do workshops. Yeah, uh, in fact, I've uh, I've got a bunch of them coming up this year all over North America, and I'm adding new dates to it all the time. But uh, he, even here in my own backyard, where that photograph was taken, uh, I do uh, day-long macro photography workshops. I've got one coming up in July. Where can people find the uh, the workshop info? Uh, if you go to my website, doncom.ca, D-O-N-K-O-M.ca, slash workshops, you'll find all the details there. Ah, fantastic, fantastic. So along with that, I, I mentioned your snowflake photography. 
Canada made a coin with two of them, actually, with, with your snowflakes, two of them. OK. And then you told me something about your photos uh, that I consider huge news. Share the news about what happened with some of your photos, including the image that we're going to talk about today. Yeah, I am just absolutely thrilled and honored that uh, Panasonic has chosen to license about a dozen of my images uh, taken with uh, their cameras and lenses. And uh, and that's for worldwide uh, perpetual use. I have no idea exactly where they're going to end up. I've got some ideas, but uh, it makes me feel really good that, uh, that a, a large camera uh, manufacturer has uh, kind of gotten on board with some of the the work that I do is not normal. Like it's not your everyday landscape and portraiture. It's often vibrant and colorful and sometimes otherworldly. And that's a lot of the stuff that they license. So that makes me very happy. The the otherworldly part really clicks with me too, by the way. That that really does. Which which brings me into the last two things I want to mention before we get into this shot. And by the way, I told you, I think, privately in the green room, but this shot is just so freaking amazing. So you are credited as a macro photographer on Mosquito, which is a, a discovery show. And yep. then you also and did actually, some stuff. I can say this now. Um, there is a discovery series coming out uh, p potentially later this month or at least during the summer uh, called Don't Blink. And uh, I believe it's going to be online availability so that people can uh, can stream it. And uh, I am featured in three of the episodes of Don't Blink as uh, on-camera talent, if you could call it that. In uh, one episode, I'll be doing ultraviolet fluorescence. In another one is snowflakes. In another one, freezing soap bubbles. So three episodes. Uh, I'm, uh, I, yeah, I'm, again, really thrilled for this stuff. So you, you, are, you are getting around so well. You also did stuff with National Geographic, the series One Strange Rock. So here's what I would suggest to anybody out there that, that's watching. If you haven't seen Don's work before, make sure that you go follow him online. And I'm dropping lower thirds up that have your websites and your social media things. But we'll mention them all a little bit later as well. And they will be in the blog post. Again, I've relaunched Behind the Shot. So the website now is BehindTheShot.tv. And you can follow me on social media. I'll drop those up as well. Uh, Behind the Shot has a Facebook page. And then usually for Twitter and Instagram, it's just my own, which is which is Steve Brazel. But again, reach out to me. Give me the feedback. I really need it. Now, one other thing I want to mention is, especially with guests like Don, uh, now that I'm doing this show on my own, I really need your help. If you guys could run by... Uh, iTunes and, and drop an iTunes review. Make sure you tell your friends, share the posts, get the word out that this show is out there. And let's see if we can get this thing up into the, the uh, iTunes you know, new featured group. You got to get a lot of, lot of subscriptions on iTunes and a lot of reviews for that. So Don, let's get into this shot a little bit. And before I bring the actual image up, explain to me what, I, I don't want anybody to see it until they hear the description. Explain to me what type of image this is. What 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 would you call this? It's a macro shot. Yeah, it's uh, it's diving right into a flower, and so. Um Inside this flower, as most flowers will have pollinators, we've got one actively busying, uh, scurrying around inside the flower. Uh, my lovely lady in green. It's a green sweat bee, and. Uh, I love this this composition because of color. Macro photography, you can play with saturated and vibrant colors. And oftentimes people say, well, how do you get such bright and beautiful colors? Well, you just choose bright and beautiful things. You know, the, this flower is a uh, a pink Persian cornflower, I believe. And it's just so super saturated. You, you, men you mentioned something. I, I want to interrupt you on this for a second. You mentioned, it. what kind of bee is it? It, it is a sweat bee. 
a sweat bee. Okay, so let me bring up this image because there's something else that you mentioned to me that that kind of is, I, I've got to know the answer to. First of all, it's a sweat bee, a green sweat bee, and you call it Lady in Green. And the title is Lady in Green. So I apologize if your ears aren't good for this, people, cover your ears now. How the heck do you know this is a lady? It's all in the uh, it, it's all in the legs, actually. So uh, the, the back legs are different on a male versus a female. And the uh, the abdomen uh, has different patterns on a male. It's um, I, I think it's uh, bright yellow and, and black. And on the female, it's black interspliced with uh, uh, waves of white fur. So the female is hairier than the male uh, on on the backside. So it's not it's it's not anything untoward. It's just the patterns on the on the back legs and and on the uh, the abdomen of the bee that uh, that give away the gender. There's now, I don't know any of this before I take the picture. This is all uh, you know learned as I'm thinking. Okay, well, what the heck is this? I want to know as much about this as possible. I didn't even know the name of the flower when I was taking the picture. This all came in research after the fact. Re okay, see, and here's what's interesting because again kind of like when we introduced it, right? This is one of those those types of shots that I love on many different levels from 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 both an artistic point of view and a technical photography point of view. And, and actually, before I say that, we should probably get the EXIF data out there because there's always somebody that will email me or message me going, you discussed this whole shot and I don't know what settings he used. Um, so your EXIF data on this if I looked it up right, if it's if it's correct in the picture, and, and it should be. do you know what it is? Uh, I can look it up as well. I don't know if you have it handy. But, I have uh, it handy. Tell me if this sounds right. I just looked it up hoping the EXIF data is right. I have it at, at ISO 200, mm -hmm. 2.8, yep. 1 60th of a second. Does that sound about right? Uh, 1 1 60th of a second? I'm sorry, 1 1 60th of a second, yeah. Yes, that sounds correct. Okay, and it's a Panasonic body, a GX9. That's right. But it's a Leica lens. Right. Panasonic has a partnership with Leica to make a lot of their higher end lenses, or at least to design them. And uh, I'm absolutely loving this 45 millimeter uh, Leica uh, f2.8 lens. And, uh, you know, for macro photography, one of the things that a lot of macro photographers will always be seeking is more magnification. You can never have enough magnification. You want to get closer and closer. And on the Canon side, I've got a lot of uh, very specialized and expensive gear to get me there. Um, but if I have this lens at its closest magnification, that's one-to-one, -one, um, due to the smaller sensor size, it's like a magnification increase. If I compare that to a one-to-one -one image on my regular full-frame digital SLR, it's uh, it's only halfway there. It's half the magnification. So you can get right in. And I did crop this image a little bit just for composition, um, but uh, I could have even gotten closer if I wanted to. So I, I mentioned that this, this image kind of struck me in multiple ways. And one of them is purely from a fine art point of view. The lady in green against this background, the, the color contrast in this image is is brilliant, right? Not only that, but I'm trying to remember, I think it was Rick Salmon once was talking about photographing horses at, at a, a workshop or sem seminar thing that I saw. And he mentioned that when you shoot horses, one of the keys is that you don't want the legs in alignment with each other. You want some of the legs, you know, bent up in movement. And if you look here, you could not have asked this bee to position his antennae more perfectly, his legs more perfectly. The stamen sticking up land in the, per I mean, you could have been unlucky. There could have been a stamen right in front of that beautiful eye. 
Oh, and there was many of those, Steve, because I, I have to uh, reiterate one very important element about macro photography, chaos is an element in every image. And so in this sense, uh, I spent maybe a good hour or two photographing these bees, ending up with a hundred or so photographs. Some were great. Uh, some were, you know, out of focus or they just didn't, uh, you know, they weren't up to snuff, but, uh, it's maybe a 100 to 1 ratio. Uh, take 100 photos to get that one special shot. Okay, that you really have. now that right there, that right there is a huge bit of information for beginning photographers. Like being a concert photographer, I have people say all the time or people ask in you know, Facebook forums, how many shots are you guys taking per band? I'm, I feel like I'm taking 300 shots and getting six. And people need to understand, depending on the subject matter that you're shooting, that type of thing is not unusual to take you know, to have your hit ratio be very low based on magnification, position, light, your control over any of those. So when you shoot a shot like this, you're serious 100 to 1. I mean, you if you took 100 shots, you might only be happy with a very small number. That's right. And and for every, uh, you know, angle that seems appropriate, like the bee is kind of coming towards you like it was in this particular photograph, um, you have to, uh, you know, take rapid fire bursts because, again, those antenna and those legs, they move really, really quickly. And you have to uh, possibly be shifting your focus through that as well. Now, I should make a slight correction to the EXIF data. I did bring it up. It was uh, the lens is an F2.8 lens, but it was shot at F13. Okay. And the reason why this is important is because even at F13, I have such a razor thin depth of field. So this bee uh, is maybe uh, a half an inch long or so. And I, I can't even get, like if it spaces in focus, by the time uh, the focus falls uh, to, uh, to, the, uh, to the backside, to the abdomen and the tips of the wings, it's blurry at that point. So if the eyes are out of focus, uh, you've, you've lost the shot. And I have a lot of images just like this one that have the eyes slightly out of focus because those compound eyes will lose their texture instantly as soon as focus is lost. Now, there's no overcoming this. Uh, I mean, I'm at F16, uh, F13. I can shoot at F16, F22. I'm not going to drastically improve my depth of field. That's never going to happen in a shot like this. Now, for some static images where the subject is non-dynamic, you can combine multiple images together for focus stacking. We talked about that with my snowflake image. Right, right. Um, and uh, and that, that's great, but not it's not possible for an image like this. Well, see, and you so, answered one of the questions, which was going to be, first of all, in a macro, your depth of field is is razor thin. And in my head, it's because what the EXIF said, oh, it's at 2.8. How did you do this? So now we know. But I, I, I am still confused by something. This is a 45 millimeter fixed focal length macro lens. So That's how correct. closer you are to this girl? So I'm probably around three or four inches away uh, from the tip of the lens to uh, to where the subject is. It, it's uh, a lot of uh, a lot of these bees don't care about you. I mean, you're not. Well, and that's what I was going to ask was I don't understand why she's sitting there while you're, you know, coming in with this giant reflective surface to her. I mean, to her eyes, it's a giant reflection of herself. They are so enamored with uh, with that flower, uh, unless I'm rapidly approaching and uh, like waving my hand over the flower, uh, like you know, I might 
be a predator or something. They're just going to sit pretty uh, and mind their own business. And I, I'm actually surprised that they're not distracted by the flash used in images like this, because this image uh, was taken with the ring flash mounted to the front of the lens, something that a lot of photographers are on the fence about. Some people say, you know what, a ring flash is... Uh, it's really flat. It doesn't give you a nice dynamic feel. But if you look closely at this image, uh, Steve, you'll notice there are no shadows, right? A ring flash is notorious for having sort of a shadowless effect when it's mounted right on the camera. Now you can hold it off to the side. If so you the want lens to, is going know, through the middle of the ring. The lens is going through the middle of the ring. And uh, in this case, it was balanced so that both sides of the ring, you can make one side brighter than the other if you want, but they were both the same brightness. Uh, and that created a very even uh, and very soft lighting effect. And that, in some cases, will ruin a shot because you lose so much depth. Shadows right. you want, you, I mean, light illuminates, shadows define. That's how you get depth and, and 3D effect in an image. But, but I'm still getting that here, and I'm getting that here because of the color. And the color will supersede that shadow effect as as defining the image. Right, and and, and this this bee has, <clears throat> first of all, the fine detail, like you say, the color in the bee's body. There's one thing that keeps coming back to me on this shot. I could swear she's looking at you. Now, there's no way to know, right? But there's no way she doesn't see you, not with that eye. Do you, and this is outside, right? Yeah, I'm sure this bee is aware of my presence. Okay, so it's handheld, or are you using a macro slider? No, this is handheld, and this is an important uh, feature of how you can get a shot like this. Because if I was on a rail, number one, this flower is moving slightly, and there's a cluster of flowers. The bees are going from flower to flower. Uh, I would have to wait a very long time before I would get anything useful if the camera was locked down on a tripod. So by free-holding the camera uh, and kind of chasing after these bees, it gives, you a, a, it gives you more opportunity to take a shot. Now, that's not to say that you're going to get the shot that you're after, because you're still going to be at like that 100 to 1 ratio uh, of shots to keepers. But you'll be actively trying to pursue this bee moving around and following it through the scene. Okay, hold on. I'm trying to picture this in my head because we all know you, have, you can mount on a tripod or they have rails, sliders, macro sliders, which enable you to slide your camera forward and backward while it's on a, on a tripod, which would be great for a static object. But what you're saying is, in this particular case is you are, it's not just that you're moving because think about it. I mean, you're close to something. You've got that issue of just normal movement. You're not at a super high shutter speed at one one sixtieth. So, but you're consciously aware that you're kind of moving with, with the element you're shooting. Is that what you're saying? So you touched on two things there, uh, and I'm going to get back to the one one sixtieth of a second in a minute. But first, okay. um, in order to, to focus and to find the subject within the frame, uh, I'm not relying on autofocus at all. In fact, I'm not even relying on manual focus. I'll set the focus point to be what, what I want my magnification to be. Uh, so roughly what I want to be in the frame in terms of size and scale. That will set my focus, my focal plane, uh, at a specific point from the front lens. And that's always going to be the exact same distance. It's called a working distance. Um, you use that term in microscopes more than with cameras, but it's the same thing. And so in order to find the focus, I physically move the camera forward and backward to change where the subject is going to fall through that focal plane. And it ends up being really freeing and really versatile because 
in this scenario, autofocus, no matter how good it is, even on my 1DX Mark II, uh, it will fail. It, it, it does it not- It cannot make, track this. It, it can't track it as accurately as you'd like. These uh, focus algorithms are not trained to find insect eyes. And you just, couldn't do it with your hand on the focus ring. It, you, you pretty much have to pre-focus and then go with it. Right. Pre-focus and go with it because that bee is constantly moving and you can move counter to it forward and backward much easier than moving a ring on the camera. Moving the ring on the lens is also going to shake the camera a little bit and you want that thing to be as solid as possible. Oh, good point. So, so now that will help you get focus where you want it to be. And a lot of photographers will then say, you know, at shutter speeds like this, motion blur is going to be a huge issue. And it would be if I was using ambient light, exclusively ambient light for an image like this, um, I would have to have a much higher ISO and probably a, a, a looser, wider aperture in order to get a shutter speed that is effective. One one sixtieth of a second is the flash sync speed for this camera. So uh, I, I like to give this scenario. If I have a... You, um, you mean the maximum flash sync speed? Right, right. Okay. Um, so in... Uh, in this fictional scenario, if I had a completely dark room, not a photon of stray light in that room, and I set my camera up for a 10-minute exposure, and arbitrarily through that time period, I pop a flash, what is the duration of my exposure? Is it 10 minutes, or is it the duration of the flash? Well, technically, it's both, but the one that matters is the flash duration. And with xenon flash tubes at their lowest power settings, and in macro photography, they're usually at a fairly low power because they're right on top of the subject, the duration of a flash could be one twenty thousandth of a second in, uh, in favorable conditions. And so if you can factor that into the equation, if in this exact shot I was at ISO 200 and F13 at one one sixtieth of a second with no flash, the image is black. It's that uh, fictitious black room scenario. That exposure doesn't matter. The one that matters is the duration of the flash that's applied to it, which at low power settings would be incredibly fast and no motion blur will ever come in. That's one of the secrets of macro photography is using flash to, uh, to overcome motion blur, which is a huge frustration for beginners. See, and that to me right there, what you just went through is the reason you can go out and just try and do macro photography on your own, obviously. And you can learn and you can research a ton of things. But this is actually, to me, the perfect example of why somebody would choose to go to a workshop like, like yours or something. Because it's, it's that kind of in-depth detail of real-world working experience. See, the problem with, with, the problem with some self-learning, I'm not saying it's bad. I mean, I've done a ton of self-learning. I got my computer engineer, Microsoft certified systems engineer originally by self-studying. But the, the problem with self-learning is you only tend to self-learn what you know you need to go find. And it's these real world tips, like what you just said about really understanding what Flash is doing in a macro environment that, that will help, which takes us to the next important thing here. An average person, beginner newbie, that picks up a Canon or a Nikon with one of their default 50 or 100 or 105 macro lenses. What could they do? What's, what's your one tip that would have them succeed more from the start? Okay, so uh, keeping in mind that a lot of advice uh, has possibly a small budgetary attachment to it. Uh, so number <laughs> oh, yeah. one, uh, if if you are a Canon shooter, uh, right away I'd recommend getting the uh, Yongnuo ring flash. It's the YN-14EX. 
And uh, this is a beautiful clone, uh, like almost a complete perfect knockoff of the Canon MR-14 EX Flash that costs around $500. The Young Nuo one is $95. Bucks. Um, I've owned and used them both. And I can tell you that the Young Nuo is a phenomenal piece of equipment. You can see uh, very similar stuff used in this image. It's used for all of my snowflake work. It's my general go-to solution unless for some reason a ring flash is unsuited for the subject. Uh, the shells of a ladybug, the eyes of a spider, water droplets, anything that's spherical will give you a ring flash reflection on it that's kind of distracting. Right. For almost everything else, it can be very useful, both on the camera and held off. And for 95 bucks in the grand scheme of things, photographically, that's that's not expensive. Uh, and no, and if it breaks, you can buy five of those for the cost of a Canon. <laughs> exactly. Now, I was I was actually using the Canon one. I happened to to already own that one, um, but I put it on uh, on the Panasonic camera. And so even the Young Nuo flash, I could put on the Panasonic camera. You could put it on a Nikon or Pentax or Sony camera without any issue. You would just have to use it like I did in this image in a manual exposure. So you set the flash to a manual flash power, take a test shot, oh wow, that's too bright or too dark, just adjust. I mean, unless your lighting conditions change, uh, then you know you should get a consistent exposure time and time again for the entire session that you're shooting for. So a ring flash or some kind of instantaneous light, uh, whether it be a, you know you've got a, an off-camera flash, well, buy a wireless trigger for it, maybe a little stand so that you could put it right. next to a subject like this. Anything that you can do to get instantaneous light is going to be an advantage for you because the biggest challenge for me when I was first getting into macro photography, couldn't get enough depth of field. And when I tried to get a greater depth of field by making my aperture smaller, I didn't have enough light and everything was becoming blurry. So in order to fight one challenge, I was encountering others and it was just layers of frustration on top of frustration. All of that was solved when I bought a ring flash. Or a good way to word it is when you bought the right tools. So exactly on a shot like this helicopter view i mean obviously we can't do a photoshop lesson or anything but what's your base post processing on a shot like this this surprisingly very very little i believe i edited this one in um, on one photo raw uh which is one of my uh, new favorite raw processors for a number of reasons but um, renee robin yeah. uses that and my buddy troy miller is a huge fan too yeah yeah, this was actually done with a pre-release version that I bugged them for. Uh, for the month of June, I am their guest coach. And uh, and so I, I shooting this with the Panasonic GX9 wasn't supported with their previous version, so I bugged them for an early pre-release version. Um, and uh, really, just cropping it in, maybe rotating it a little bit just to get some nice dynamic lines. If you uh, see the, the top uh, left corner, you've got a little bit of a triangle and diagonal lines drawing your eye into right. the frame. You know, having those kinds of framing elements are useful. That's true. This uh, actually, that's another thing. This has leading lines. It does. And, and they're kind of <laughs> hidden in the background. You don't yeah. notice them they're right They're subliminal, but, but they're there. They are definitely there. Macro photography is all about lines and shapes and color. And so oftentimes I'm cropping in post-process for lines that I couldn't really plan for in the field because there's just too much chaos going on. Uh, so I'm just trying to redefine the image based on those terms and uh, really making the eye stand out. So using a bit of structural adjustment on the eye just to make it pop. Um, I don't think that there was much else done with this. Those wow. colors are natural to the image. And uh, you know, part of the fun of this is you know understanding what colors you might be able to get and uh, and how you can, you know, if you want to you know, photograph beautiful flowers, go to the garden store in the fall, buy a bunch of bulbs, put them in the ground, and in the springtime 
time, yeah, you're playing the long game, uh, but you're going to have the color palette for you to experiment with. And hopefully you get some lovely pollinators to come alongside. By the way, you can actually buy pollinators. A lot of um, uh, there's some uh, natural pest control companies out there uh, will sell you pollinating bees. So I bought mason bees and, uh, and leafcutter bees. Uh, I haven't seen them in the garden this year, but I bought a bunch of them and I'm hoping I can track some down. So you can actually get all of the ingredients and kind of manufacture. To, to set up the scenario to happen for you, basically. Exactly. Yeah. And I, I'm lucky enough that these green sweat bees come back year on year and they reliably go to these beautiful pink flowers and then uh, to all of the thistles that we have growing in, in our yard. They love those too. So, um, and, and that's not to say this is all there is. I've got some beautiful orchids that are just about to bloom in the garden. And uh, there's, I, I'm going to make a photograph with them, but I have no idea what visual ingredients are going to come into play. It might take an afternoon of just humming and hawing and watching things come and go to these flowers to see what that story and that narrative is going to be. But I'm sure you'll agree, Steve, that this image has a narrative. Uh, it's one foreign to us as, as humans, uh, but it is the insect world and you're living it and it's kind of a living, breathing space uh, that uh, I hope this image embodies. Yeah, and, and you look, again, I love this image on both the technical end, but also the art end because it's, you know, it's not one of those insect images that makes you, you know, would make somebody go oh, creepy crawly thing. It, it's a beautifully executed creature, basically, is what it is. And I love that. So, if, again, if you haven't seen Don Komarechka's work, uh, check out his websites. I'll throw those up in just a second. And, of course, at BehindTheShot.tv, I will have a small gallery on the blog post associated with this episode uh, of his work as well. But you got to check out his stuff. So, Don, how can people find you? First of all, you've got two websites. What are those? Uh, so that's doncom.ca. That's where my main portfolio of work is. Uh, my Snowflake uh, my snowflake work is uh, quite prominent and it's a big part of my business. So I've got a separate website for that where I sell uh, a book uh, called Sky Crystals. And the website for that is skycrystals.ca. But Steve, let's not forget about Photo Geek Weekly. Ah, Photo Geek Weekly, the podcast, which I've been on luckily twice. Uh, you know what? Give me the, the, the quick helicopter view so people understand Photo Geek Weekly and they can subscribe at your website. Of course. So Photo Geek Weekly is uh, a weekly play on the geekiest, most technical photography news that I can drum up. Uh, if the news is slow, we'll go into controversial uh, topics on uh, uh, photographic morality or ethics uh, or legal stuff. But it's all the behind the scenes, not all of the, the front running topics that you would get from the majority of uh, photography podcasts out there. We try to take a different approach, really get under the hood with things. And uh, Steve, you're a great guest to have on that podcast. We got to have we, you back. We talked about... Too. We talked about the fastest camera on earth, and I'm not going to tell you what it is. Just what's the website? Photogeekweekly.com. Photogeekweekly.com. Make sure you subscribe to that one. Give him some reviews as well. But go look up the episode where we talked about, first of all, a camera that can take pictures of sound, and then also the fastest camera. I'm not going to share what it is. You got to go look it up, but trust me, well, well worth it. Where, where else? Where? What are you on Twitter, by the way? So I'm Doncom, D-O-N-K-O-M on Twitter, and uh, you'll find me on Facebook at Doncom Photo, uh, and I'm there on Instagram as well as Doncom Photo. Okay, so Doncom Photo on both Facebook and Instagram. Yeah. Okay, and then where can people find your workshops? 
So doncom.ca slash workshops is where I'll have all of the ones listed for uh, for my uh, in-studio stuff. And I've got to put more of those listings up for the stuff that I'll be doing. Uh, just a quick briefly, I'm at the NECCC conference in Amherst, Massachusetts, and that's coming up in July. Uh, I will be at the Mike Motes Macro Photography Conference in October. And uh, in Princeton, New Jersey, I've got an infrared photography workshop alongside macro photography workshops. Uh, and those are going to be in September. So that's going to be a really, I think there's a few spots left in that one, but they're going quickly. And again, I can't stress it enough. Think about the name of his podcast, right? Photo Geek Weekly. If, if you are looking to really learn photography, and if you're like me, it's not just, you know, it's kind of like the old saying, Anybody can mow their yard, but it's the person who edges the yard, right? If you want the details that really will take your macro photography, or for that matter, your, your infrared or ultraviolet or, or landscape photography, to the next level, it's the details that are going to get you there, and, and Don's the guy that knows them. So Don Komarechka, thank you so much for coming on my podcast again. I cannot wait to have you on again because I do want to do one of your ultraviolet shots really badly. Oh, well, and then that's a, a really fun rabbit hole to go down. There's a lot of technical stuff to decide beyond just macro photography. So we'll save that for another episode. I'm looking forward to it. Well, again, thank you very much. And to everybody, thanks so much for following Behind the Shot. Make sure that you subscribe to the podcast. You can find the links at the website behindtheshot.tv. You can subscribe through iTunes or whatever podcast app that you like. But again, as I've just relaunched on my own, I could really use your help. Head to the website, head to iTunes, leave a review view. Pass it on to your friends. Help me spread the word. I'd really, really appreciate it. Again, my name is Steve Brazel, the host. Thanks for joining us, taking a look behind the shot. 